0: Friends, would you open with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. We're in Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to read two verses for us this morning, and then we're going to dive in together. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Hear now God's word. Heavenly Father, that would be our prayer, Lord, that even now, even as this morning is considered part of the race that we run with endurance, we, for these next moments, would continually look to Jesus, that we would behold you, that we would be caught up in this vision of you, that it would change us and continue to change us forever, we ask in his precious name. Amen. Well, friends, Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, this is a very familiar passage to most of us, and it's got a very simple structure to us, one that we can visualize, and so I want us to do a little exercise together. If you're um, a visual learner here in our midst, if you're taking notes here this morning, any of our kids, we can all participate in doing this. I want you to take out your bullet journal, and I want you to draw this picture that I'm going to give you, okay? And this is going to be the structure for the sermon today. On the left side of your page, I want you to draw a little cloud, and then on the right side of the page, I want you to draw a little throne, okay? So you got a cloud on the left, a throne on the right, and then you're going to put some words in the center. Right in the middle, you're just going to put three words, lay, run, look. So you've got the cloud on one side drawn, the throne on the other side, and then down the center, you're just writing these words, lay, run, look. You can do this very simply to visualize what we're doing here. I actually did this in my notes. I'm just preaching from pictures today. You can see my throne here that looks kind of like a TAPS folding chair, and you can see my cloud that's kind of like a fat Mickey Mouse glove, but that's okay. Jesus understands what I'm drawing here this morning, and he loves me anyway. We're going to talk about all five of these elements. We're just going to talk about each one very briefly, cloud, lay, run, look, throne, and we're going to chart our race out of the clouds and into heaven. That's what we're going to do very simply this morning. So let's start with the cloud. Verse 1, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Right now, as we run this race, we feel the presence of these witnesses. They're here, they're now, they're present with us. We feel this gathering of people. These are believers who have died and are now in God's presence. We just read about them in chapter 11. We read about those who, by faith, have run this race already. They've crossed the finish line, and now they gather as witnesses standing before God. But that reality is present for us even now as we continue to run this race. Those witnesses are gathered. Every saint who has died in the Lord is a witness in this cloud. But here's the million-dollar question. What are they witnessing? You've got the cloud of witnesses, all believers who have died, but what are they witnessing? Are they a witness of us or are they a witness to us? Are they primarily watching us? Like, are they there now looking at us, staring at us, watching us, or is it that they're a witness with respect to the fact that they speak to us? Are they spectators or are they speakers? Now I've always, as I've read this passage, imagined the former. I imagine them primarily as spectators. And so I literally imagine you've got Abel and Enoch and they're in heaven and they're watching me kind of blunder through the Christian life, right? And they're kind of shaking their heads, and they're saying, David, David, David. I mean, this is, this is bad. This is really painful to watch. You spent like six minutes reading your Bible this morning, and that's including a bathroom break. I mean, Noah, he built an ark by faith for crying out loud. What are you doing for Jesus? This is painful to watch. We're going to go watch Julie. That's much more interesting. We're done watching you. That's, that's what I imagine, right? You got this cloud of witnesses, and they're kind of staring at us, watching us. Now, there may be a sense in which those who have died are watching things on earth, but that's not entirely clear from the Bible. You can't make a clear-cut case that those in heaven are constantly observing what's happening here on earth. You have a couple of passages that lead us in that direction. You've got Revelation 6, which talks about martyrs who are waiting for judgment so that justice can be fulfilled. So in some sense, they know what's going on on earth. Jesus tells us that when anybody comes to faith, when anybody's born again, there is much rejoicing before his angels in heaven, which leads us to believe that must be those who have died. It's not the angels, it's in front of the angels. And so maybe there's some sense in which those who have died see See who are converted. And then you have a passage like this, Hebrews chapter 12, where you can imagine this kind of scene with this metaphor. You've got athletes competing, and you've got this cloud of witnesses like an audience in the stands watching what is happening here. But but that's kind of all you have. You don't have a ton to go on on the fact that those in heaven are watching what's happening on earth. In fact, you have much more in Scripture that says something about what those in heaven are doing right now, right? Their, Their attention, I promise you, is not primarily drawn to us. It's to Jesus, the risen and reigning Jesus, who they are now worshiping. And so we don't have a lot of evidence that they're breaking from that worship scene to turn around and watch what's happening here on earth. With respect to that, I think when we talk about a cloud of witnesses, deceased saints, are more speakers than spectators. I think we're noticing them more than they're actually turning around and noticing us. We're thinking about the race that they've run, as we just did in Hebrews chapter 11, and the witness and the testimony they have left to us. With respect to that, the witnesses as speakers, I love how F.F. F. Bruce puts this passage. He says, these runners have borne witness to the possibilities of a life of faith. We just spent months in Hebrews chapter 11, studying the possibilities of this life of faith. When Jesus gives the gift of faith, when we see him do that to brothers and sisters who have preceded us, things become possible that we did not even know were possible. You've got people in Hebrews chapter 11. You've got people in our past who have left homes and families. They've laid down rights and reputations, people who are giving up wealth and not being afraid to die. They've traded life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness for a desire for a heavenly home. And when they do that, that stands as a testimony before us. The effect of something like that, of seeing this testimony, of seeing these speakers who have gone before us, I think can be something like taking a group of self-centered high school students on a field trip to the National Arlington Cemetery. When you look out over hundreds of acres and hundreds of thousands of gravestones, you don't soon forget that there is something greater here than ourselves that might cost us our very selves. As such, these Old Testament saints, those who have died in the Lord, bear witness to the possibilities of life of faith that lay ahead of us. They are a cloud of witnesses that stand as a testimony bearing witness to these things for us so that we can begin to run this race. We have the cloud, and now we look to the three things that God is calling us to do. Number one, to lay aside. We read next after the cloud, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. So we're being warned about these two things. You've got weights and you've got sins. And I actually love that the writer to the Hebrews, he doesn't take time to list what these weights and these sins are. It's almost like the writer is saying, The better sense you have of this cloud of witnesses and what has gone before you, and the better sense you have of Jesus, the one who stands in front of you, the more you're going to be able to figure out exactly what these sins and these weights are. I don't have to spell these things out for us. And this becomes a key question in our passage. We're not asking, what is my right? But we're asking the question, what helps me run? Not what do I have a right to do, but what is going to help me run? There are going to be things in our life that are perfectly legal. There are going to be things in our life that are never mentioned in the Bible as a sin. There are going to be things in our life that no fellow Christian would imagine telling us not to do. But to us, they keep us from running well they waste time, they occupy our thoughts, they invite comparison, they distract us, they're not wicked, they're weights, and we cannot afford to carry them in the race that we're called to run. And so, number one, we cast them aside so that, number two, we can continue to run with endurance. This is what the scripture says, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That's interesting. The Bible gives us Dozens of metaphors to describe the Christian life, right? You start thinking through your Bible about the way the life of a believer is described, and there's dozens of metaphors. You have the metaphor of a baby who's growing up into maturity. You have metaphors about vines that are bearing fruit that's going to be harvested. You have metaphors about a tower that's being designed and then built. But here's another metaphor to add to the equation one that might not be one we readily reach for, and that is the metaphor of the Christian life as long-distance running. And I guess the point is this. We don't get to just pick our favorite metaphors for the Christian life, right? We don't get to side with the ones that most resonate with us. We need every single metaphor that the Bible offers us to understand exactly what it is that we're doing in this Christian life. There are days when the Christian life is going to feel like green pastures and still waters. And there are days that the Christian life is going to feel like mile 10 of a 26.2 mile marathon. When you've got blisters forming, You've got middle-aged moms who are passing you. You're beginning to wonder why you ever signed up for this race in the first place. And on those days, we do well to remember that for whatever the Christian life is also, it is a race to be run. Maybe for that reason, we need less Thomas Kincaid prints hanging in our office and more Iron Man posters. We need less baby onesies to celebrate our new birth in Christ and we need more breastplates of righteousness to do battle. This thing is a race. It's a war. We are fighting. We are running. This is a prevailing metaphor for the Christian life. And I want to say this very carefully. The writer to the Hebrews, he pleads, let us run with endurance. He's begging the church, let us run with endurance. And the reason he does that is because it is not a foregone conclusion that we are going to run with endurance. Just because the race is set before us and the course is marked out for us doesn't mean we're going to run. We spent some very sober sermons in Hebrews chapter 6 and chapter 10 learning about those who we saw at the starting line of this race who we are not going to see at the finish line. It's not a foregone conclusion that we're going to leave this service. We're going to throw off weights and we're going to run this race like it really matters. Which means that the seriousness of the race the vigilance by which we mortify our flesh and live by the Spirit, the stamina we desperately need daily, all drives us back to the one who gave us faith in the first place. Number three, we look to Jesus. I love the New Living Translation of this passage. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, on whom our faith depends from start to finish. This Old Testament cloud of examples that surrounds us, that's only going to take us so far. This entire race, start to finish, it depends on Jesus. He is the beginning of our faith by his death and his resurrection, by calling each and every one of us. He is absolute beginning of our faith, but he's also the middle of our faith because we learned that he now stands in intercession for us. He pleads on his father's for our behalf, and he resonates with us in our very weaknesses, and he is the goal of our faith, where we are headed, because this whole thing is going to end on our faces before this throne worshiping him. He's the beginning, he's the middle, and he's the end. According to this diagram we drew, we're going to run from out of the clouds and into this throne room in heaven, and I want to close with a fantastic thought. I want to draw our attention back a little bit in our passage to a paragraph that kind of bridges Hebrews chapter 11 in this hall of faith we read about, and then these verses in Hebrews chapter 12. So look with me to chapter 11, verses 39 and 40. Hear this. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Now hang on a second. In what ways are deceased saints lacking perfection apart from us? What exactly are Moses and Abraham and Sarah possibly missing, possibly needing from us as we run this race so that they could be made perfect? What is that paragraph even talking about? Well, that Greek word, made perfect in verse 40, is actually the same Greek word that's being used in our verse 2, Jesus as the perfecter of our faith. And when we think about these Old Testament saints have not yet been made perfect, we can't just think about perfection as in righteousness. It certainly has that meaning, but we know that everybody who's born again is already declared as righteous, and everybody who dies in the Lord is now in God's presence, and they're free from even the presence of sin. So there's no sense in which those who have died in the Lord are lacking perfection in the sense of righteousness. They are righteous, and they stand in absolute perfection in heaven. But that word perfection carries a different meaning, not just righteous, but it also carries the meaning of being fulfilled or completed or finished. And in that respect, those who have died have not experienced this full and complete perfection. What those who have died in the Lord experience now is not what we will all experience for all eternity. What's happening in heaven right now at this moment is not the new heavens and the new earth. Heaven today, it's wonderful, it's glorious, it is tear-free worship, but it is not all that there is to come. At any moment, At the twinkling of an eye, for those who are running the race here on earth and those who are gathered as a cloud in heaven, there is going to be a trumpet that will sound. And Jesus himself will appear and judgment will pass over all who have died and all who are alive. And heaven and earth as we know it, they're going to pass away and be completely remade. And a new Jerusalem is going to descend out of heaven. And there is going to be a wedding between the church and Jesus. And none of that can happen until this race that we're running is done. Our race, your race, my race, it might end when we die at any moment. It might end when Jesus returns at any moment. We may actually die in the Lord and join this cloud of witnesses, and we may worship and witness for a thousand years before Jesus comes again. But whatever race that God has ordained for each of us, nobody will walk on the new earth until all of us are finished running on this earth. That means that everybody who has died in the Lord, all the way from Abel that we read at the very beginning to those loved ones we have lost in the Lord very recently, all of those who now make up this cloud of witnesses, they have a vested interest in the race that we now run. Some of these saints, they've been standing in Jesus's presence and they've been worshiping for thousands of years. Imagine that. They've been in God's presence for thousands of years, each day brighter and more glorious than the last, but they have not yet experienced the full, perfect completion that is to come. Abel himself has never walked a mile On this new earth in which brother is not going to rise up against brother to murder him. Jacob, he has not lived for a minute in this new world that is no longer dominated by favoritism and jealousy. David himself, King David, he can't imagine a new Canaan in which the borders are not harassed by war. And Samuel, the prophet and the priest, he can't even begin to conceive of an Israel where the tabernacle is no longer needed. But on that final day, when that last runner takes her last step across the finish line, the race will be over. The cloud will join with the athletes in front of this throne and Jesus will make perfect all he promised that he would. Let's pray together. Jesus, we're long for that day, we're jealous for that day, we're needy for that day, we tire of the race that you've put before us, and so I plead with you that whether this race is going to last another minute or it's going to last another thousand years, that you as the one who starts and carries and and finishes our faith would make good on your promise and you will bring us safely to the finish line, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.